Let us now, <clears throat> pardon me, once again turn to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah, the second chapter. And let me remind you that we have here the 6th century B.C. prophet, along with Haggai, called to encourage the people of God to get up and get busy about rebuilding the fallen temple. They have returned from Babylonian captivity. They're building their own homes and houses, but the temple of the Lord is still in ruins. So Zechariah begins by divine inspiration, calling the people of God to repentance. And then he is given a series of eight night visions by the Lord. Very strange to us, very unusual, but all of them to set before them this encouragement to build the temple and also the hope of what God is going to do, not only then and there, but also here and now and in the future for the people of God. And so we come to the third of those night visions in chapter 2. Before reading, let us bow before the Lord. O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Give to us a high view of who thou art. Help us to have strong biblical views of thine infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being and all of thy wondrous attributes. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit would be at work enabling us to concentrate on what can be for some a difficult passage. We pray, Heavenly Father, that all of the preaching of the Word of God in this place will be as sacred fire, that it will be with fervent love, that in every service of worship we would see here of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and that the people of God would be built up in the most holy faith. Father, we ask these things ultimately for the glory of the one who gave himself for our sins upon the cross and shed his blood to redeem us, our Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of the Bible, the theme of this night vision. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We will read together Zechariah, the second chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, 
For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the purpose of the first two night visions that we have seen together was to encourage God's people with the knowledge that God loves them, that he has not forgotten them, and though they may be lowly and despised, God will not forsake his heritage, will not forsake his people, and he will never forsake his purpose of sovereign grace. The temple must be built. In New Testament language, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And in this third night vision, Zechariah was shown a man with a measuring line. He measures Jerusalem, and an image is given of the future extensive prosperity of Jerusalem. And we see in this chapter three things. The first is, this is first, we see an image in the first four verses. And that image that is presented is of a man with a measuring line, that is with a tape measure. Who is this man? Well, I think it becomes very clear when we take the whole context into consideration that this is the same as the rider on the red horse in the first vision. This is Christ in his pre-incarnate appearance. Consider he's distinguished from the other angels. Angels obey him and do his bidding. His dignity is greater than theirs. He is pictured as the builder or extender of God's kingdom. The measuring line, this measuring tape, is in his hand. And couple this with the intra-Trinitarian communion represented in this text. The man with the measuring line must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a Christophany, if you will, the Son of God who goes forth to measure Jerusalem Christ being the architect, Christ being the builder, Christ being the extender of his church, the enlarger of his people. And it should not surprise us to see Christ so represented in this passage. He goes forth then with this measuring line. The measuring line or tape generally is the tool of the carpenter or the tool of the surveyor. And God is often described as using, using a measuring line. 
Just for example, in Job 38, we read, Where wast thou when I lay the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, what hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? God, in awesome grandeur, then, measures out the heavens. He is also represented as measuring out judgment. In the 40th chapter and following of the book of Ezekiel, the dimensions of the eschatological temple are measured out. And so the one who measured out the heavens at creation now measures Jerusalem with new creation in mind. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 16 that we read, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And so what we found is the kernel of this in chapter 1, verse 16, now flowers into this grand vision here in chapter 2 of the man with the measuring line. But the remarkable thing about this is that he measures a city that is in ruins. Jerusalem is fallen. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple is rubble. And yet he measures fallen Jerusalem. Why does he do this? Because already he is indicating that he has a purpose of grace for them and that he will not leave Jerusalem. He will not leave this temple in ruins. As Dr. Barrett says, God's purpose for his people is greater than their expectations. They've come back. We have already seen they're a discouraged lot. The temple, once great and filled with grandeur, is, is fallen. They build their own homes, but they're so discouraged they don't, they don't know where to begin to rebuild the the. the the, the fall in Jerusalem that was destroyed in the captivity when they were taken into Babylon. And so this book and this section is about hope. I'm going to see that Jerusalem is rebuilt. I'm going to see that the temple is rebuilt. I'm going to use you to do it. You may not be filled with hope now, but these visions are given to you so that you will be filled with hope and that you will be the obedient people of God who love me and love the truth and love what this temple stands for and loves the coming Messiah. Get up, get busy. And it's possible for us to have a personal application of that to our lives even now because undoubtedly I'm preaching to someone this morning whose life is in ruins, whose heart is filled with rubble, perhaps some Christian that is in some backslidden condition. And the word of hope comes to you that God's purpose for you is greater than your expectation. And so that's the image. The image contains and conveys also, however, a promise. And that's the second thing we see in the text, a promise. We see several promises, actually. In verses 4 and 5, we see the promise of the growth of Jerusalem. Let's read these verses again. And he said to him, run, run to that young man. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so there is, first of all, the promise of the growth 
of Jerusalem. Now in rubbles, who could have seen it? Well, God saw it because God will do it. The interpreting angel runs to tell this young prophet that he has good news for him. And his message in verse 4 is that Jerusalem will be extraordinarily enlarged. Living in a discouraging setting, they are given encouragement. As Calvin says of this passage, the measurement of Jerusalem was different in the sight of God from what it was in the sight of man. Here we have God's perspective on Jerusalem and the temple, God's perspective on his people, God's perspective on his church. Here we have God saying, I'm going to so extend the kingdom of God that it will have no walls. When will this glorious prophecy take place? It certainly had no complete fulfillment then. Even when the temple was rebuilt and Jerusalem was rebuilt. When will this glorious prophecy take place? Well, people of God, it is being fulfilled even now and will be totally fulfilled in the future when Christ comes again. For what the prophet does throughout this book is to weave in and out of his present setting using the realities that were present to him to point to future promises and blessings. He uses present realities as symbols of new covenant blessings, and the prophets always do this. Just take, for example, the way the extension of the kingdom is expressed in the book of Malachi, the last book, right after Zechariah. When he expresses the extension of the kingdom in verse 11 of chapter 1, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Or take, for example, the way in which he speaks in the book of Amos, the ninth chapter, when the Messiah harvester comes, and no sooner has he harvested a part of the field than other, other fruit is coming up, and he continues to harvest, and more comes up, and he continues to harvest, and he puts that in his sack, and more comes. Well, this is the extension of the kingdom of God that is promised by the Lord himself. Could these people have seen it? No. Do we always see it? No. But this is God's perspective on his church. Jerusalem is a figure of the entire church. Zion of the people of God. You can read Hebrews 12, and it clearly says this. So this is happening now. The narrow forms of the Mosaic economy have been fulfilled in Christ, and the church's limits are extended to include the nations And because prophecy has a staging principle, the realities and the final ultimate fulfillment will be in the eternal state. When throughout the book of Revelation we read passages such as we read in chapter 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. That is the ultimate fulfillment of what we read of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the extension of the kingdom that is including all nations, so that from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth, there will be myriads upon myriads, ten thousands upon ten thousands, millions upon millions, worshipping the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So that's the first thing that is promised in this passage. But along the way, the church of Jesus Christ faces many dangers, toils, and snares. And so he also promises his protection of his people, his church. In verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be her glory in the midst. Jerusalem then will be without walls, but in the ancient Near East, to have a city without walls is a dangerous thing. It's defenseless. Isn't this unsafe for the people of God? The astonishing answer is no, because God is himself her wall of protection. Who will need a wall of stone when God says, I will be your wall, your wall of fire? Bringing to mind the the pillar of fire in the book of Exodus, or Elijah in 2 Kings 6 that was protected by a wall of fire, or the return of Christ in flaming fire in 2 Thessalonians 1, or the promise in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 5, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Who dares throw himself into a wall of fire? To attack the church of God is to throw oneself into our God who is a consuming fire. If you were an enemy of God and His gospel, you must hear that no matter how the church is treated by nations and governments and individuals, our God is a wall of fire for His people. And He will punish the wicked. And so there's the promise of the protection of God. And no matter how small in some places the church of Jesus Christ may be, there is the indefectibility of the church. That is, God will always have His church and always will have His people. And then there's the promise that he will be the glory of the church in verse 5. The city has no walls. God is her protection. But further, he is the glory of the church, the Shekinah of the church. The picture is not only the Holy of Holies where there is the Shekinah glory. But the picture here is the entire city is now the Shekinah, filled with the Shekinah glory of God. The whole church is the holy of holies. And so it returns us to the theme that the glory of the church, do you remember in the vision last week, the glory of the church, here was the church way down in the bottom like the myrtle trees, and there was the rider on the red horse with her. Here we also have the promise that Christ is in the midst of his people. Christ is in the midst of his people. 
As T.V. Moore put it, we can learn the true glory of the church. It is not in any external pomp or power of any kind, not in frowning battlements either of temple or spiritual pretensions, not in rites and ceremonies, however moss-grown and venerable, not in splendid cathedrals and gorgeous vestments and the swell of music and the glitter of eloquence, but in the indwelling glory of the invisible God. Her outward rites and ceremonies, therefore, should only be like what the earth's atmosphere is to the rays of the sun, a pure, transparent medium of transmission. We have an image then, and we have a promise. And now follows God's own application to his people. So that's the third thing, an application. And it's in two parts, covering verses 6 through 13. The first application that he makes is to those who are exiled and who have remained in Babylon, even though now they are free to return. And what does he say to them? Well, he says in verse 6 and following, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. His message to those who were exiled and who there are remaining when they could come back is, come out of her. Get back to where the temple is. Return to Zion. And so he references the Lord of the North, which of course means Babylon. Babylon always invaded from the North. Those who remain in Babylon are to return, and there are two reasons that they are called to return. The first reason is because Babylon will be judged, he says in verse 9. You do not want to be in the place where God is going to judge And then because of the promised blessing on the church in verses 10 through 13. Now about this judgment, this is rich indeed. Because the first intra-Trinitarian reference in the book of Zechariah is found here. Christ is sent to obtain glory by punishing the heathen and he is sent by Jehovah himself. Did you notice this in verse 8? For thus says the Lord of hosts after his glory... He sent me to the nations who plundered you. And so as someone has said, the Messiah is sent by the Father for the vindication of his glory on the nations that have spoiled Israel for God's cause and glory are inseparably linked with the fortunes of his people. The humiliation and subjugation of Israel by the nations must be avenged by the one who was dishonored in their dejected condition. Let the nations beware, the text is saying. When they attempt to trample upon the people of God, it is as if they have touched the apple of God's eye. Verse 8. What does that mean? The apple of one's eye is the pupil. That's what it means. Think of how you protect your eyes, how God himself has given protection for your eyes with the bone structure and the eyelids and the eyelashes and and what happens when something or someone 
comes toward your eye. Immediately you protect your eye. God says in this passage, and the same thing is said in Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. It's just referenced here by Zechariah. God is saying, when, when you mess with my people, you're poking me in the eye. I, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. As Calvin said, the love of God towards the faithful is so tender that when they are hurt, he burns with so much displeasure as though one attempted to pierce his eyes. He is jealous and protective of his blood-bought people. And his judgment is so described in verse 9 that all he need do is raise his hand. And he lays them prostrate. Fulfilled in the Persian conquest of Babylon, when Persia conquered Babylon and tens of thousands of Babylonian nobles were crucified. But there's a principle here of greater fulfillment. For every historical judgment that you find in the world and in Holy Scripture points to an ultimate judgment that is to come when Christ comes again as the vindicator of his people. Do you remember vision one? All the nations were at rest and our mediator cries out, how long? So that we see that delay of punishment, as someone has said, is no proof of impunity. God often seems to be asleep, but he is only awaiting the appointed time. But then, in the end, when all seems as if it was from the foundation of the world, the herald cry shall go forth, be silent, O earth, for Jehovah is aroused in his terrible work, and the day of his wrath is come. Let men kiss the sun while they may. So, Babylon is going to be judged God will bless his people, but you who remain there, God says in this passage through his prophet, I'm calling you to come out of her. Now surely if in reading scripture you find this theme elsewhere, you know that it's extremely important, and it is. Babylon in Scripture. Yes, he's calling them out of literal Babylon, but it becomes a symbol in Scripture. Babylon represents in Scripture this evil world system under the judgment of God. In Revelation chapter 18, fallen fallen is Babylon the great. And knowing that that fall would come, he says in that chapter, come out of her, my people. He says the, second, the same thing in 2 second, second Corinthians chapter 6, when he says, come out from among her and be separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. There is this theme in Scripture of calling the people of God out of Babylon, representing this fallen world system. And so, where are we in our hearts? Are we, Psalm 8410, dwelling in the tents of the wicked? Are you a professing child of God and yet your conscience is dulled? 
what the world offers will not last. The text is saying, in our hearts, get out of Babylon. That's the call to us now. Separate from this world system, its viewpoint, its presuppositions, its approach to life. Get up and fight for the Lord. Horatius Bonner somewhere said, fellowship between faith and unbelief must sooner or later be fatal to faith. You cannot mingle true Christian faith with this world system and think that you're going to come through unscathed. Do you think that some who remained in Babylon, they had this marvelous opportunity to return, to return. They, they've remained in Babylon. Do you think that some did not return because they were unbelieving, satisfied in Babylon, not caring that the Lord's temple needed building in Palestine because they were not willing to work or they were not willing to fight? Could it be that they were now under the influence of the worldly ways of Babylon and they were losing their distinctives as the people of God? They were becoming Babylonians more than they were the people of God? That is the thing, the great thing, the great issue that we are facing as the church of Jesus Christ now. We are losing our distinctiveness as the people of God. I don't know if you've seen recently, because it happens every year, that, that polls are taken as to what evangelicals believe. Now, a certain grain of salt, it's poll. Nonetheless, it's appalling, the results, so that evangelicals now are even buying into the world's viewpoint in sexual ethics in this whole idea that one can choose your gender. What is happening there? We are losing our distinctiveness as the people of God and failing to live under the divine authority of His Word. So what about us? What about me? Are we growing comfortable in this world system? Do we not need to hear the call to separate from the world system that God intends to destroy? Is not the call urgent when he says, up, up, flee from the land of the north. Up, escape to Zion, you who will dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So that's one application. But then he takes the themes that we have seen this morning and he makes another application. And that application is to the exiles who have returned, who came back but now are discouraged. And he says, I'm promising you some things. I'm promising you a people. In verse 11, he says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. I am promising the conversion of the Gentiles, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will, through its missionary efforts, be preached to the world, and God's people will be drawn. The church will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the beginning of which is the evangelistic effort, blessed of the Lord as the gospel is preached, consummated when Jesus Christ comes again and all of his own gather before the throne and worship the Lamb. I'm promising you a people. Did you notice in the passage this morning that Pastor McNeil read to us from Isaiah 54? 
God said, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. That's Old Testament language for this present reality of what God is doing in his world. You say, I don't see it. They didn't see it. This is God's perspective on his church. William Carey, you might remember, preached from this text, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And surely that's the attitude that we need in his church. He has promised a people, but also he has promised something something far greater than we can even comprehend He has promised his presence with us. And he says in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now this points ahead to another passage in Zechariah chapter 9. When he says in verse 9, using similar language, chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is that? What is he saying here in verse 10? I will be with you. It's what he is saying in chapter 9, verse 9 and following, that Christ will come, that there will be the incarnation of our Lord that the Word would become flesh and dwell among us, and that we would see His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Christ is the one who is sent to bring judgment in verse 8, but also He is sent to bring the blessing of bringing in the nations in verses 10 and 11. And God, God is sending God in this passage. The Old Testament is not intelligible apart from the truth of the Trinity. What joy at Christ's first coming, what joy at Christ's second coming. And then he brings it to a head in verse 13 when he says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And we hardly have now in our day and in the church We hardly, barely have a view of God that will help us to to be astounded at such a passage in which God says here, and he says in Habakkuk 2.20, the passage with which we began our service today, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Our view of God is so low. And we are so irreverent in our age. Let that not be true of us, people of God, for what he is doing here is this. He is encouraging God's people. I am in control. I am the one who is the Lord of history. Things are not what they seem. My truth and my gospel will prevail. You will be a part of this and you will be eternally blessed. I'm going to send my own son who will be with you. 
My presence will be with you when he ascends on high. The Spirit of God will be present with you in the eternal state. I will be present with you. Do not allow the hardship of the present to press out the hope that I'm setting before you of a glowing and beyond description, wonderful future that I, I secure for my chosen people. And it requires this high view of who God is, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. For us to begin to appreciate when God is aroused and says to the world, be silent. And He puts an end to all of the noise and all of the rebellion and all of the cacophony that should burden the heart of every Christian today. So awe-inspiring is our God, be silent all flesh at the dread judgment of God upon His enemies and rich blessing upon His people. All flesh will be hushed and He will act. God is not upon a throne wringing His hands, wondering what to do unable to affect his purposes and plans. So let me bring some inferences from this admittedly rather thick passage, detailed passage. Difficult passage in many ways, and we've only scratched the surface of it. But let me bring some inferences. The first inference, if these truths were an encouragement to build the physical temple, to get up and labor for the Lord, how encouraged should we be as God builds his spiritual temple, his church? Encouraged to know that Christ is the man with a measuring line. It is he who ultimately builds his church. That we live in a day foreseen by the prophets with the wide extension of his kingdom that all may enter who believe because there are no walls around that city. But Jehovah is our protector because there is a wall of fire that protects from enemies. But he promises a people and he promises a presence to be with his people. And on verse 12, Kyle and Delich, Old Testament scholars of a bygone day, hardly can be excelled today. We must not limit the idea of the Holy Land. By the way, verse 12 is the only place in Scripture that Palestine is called the Holy Land. We must not limit the idea of the Holy Land in this passage to Palestine because the idea of the people of God will be so expanded by the addition of many nations that it will not have room enough within the limits of Palestine. And according to verse 4, even Jerusalem will no longer be a city without boundaries. The Holy Land reaches just as far as the nations which have become the people of Jehovah by attaching themselves to Judah spread themselves out over the surface of the earth. And ultimately is fulfilled in the Holy of Holies, the great city of the King that comes down out of heaven. And in the midst of all of this, true believers, as you pursue your Lord and serve your Lord and 
take the gospel of Jesus Christ to friends and neighbors and co-workers. And as you are, as many people who believe in Jesus today are persecuted for your belief, true believers are the pupil of his eye for Christ's sake. And when they mess with you, they're messing with him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus asked. But the good news is, your God will never be blinded. Never. And the punishment of the wicked will just as much declare the glory of God as will the salvation of his people. Just contemplate that. Do not be his enemy. If you are here and you are outside of Christ, throw down the weapons of your warfare. Trust in Jesus Christ. Become his friend. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But what does God say? I will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so, people of God, look at what God promises his people in this passage. And he promises it when Jerusalem is in ruins. And do you know? It deserved to stay in ruins. Not one of the people of God who received these rich and wonderful promises that extend to us now in a richer and more wonderful way. Not one of the people of God then, not one of the people of God now. None of us can say, you owed it to me. None of us can say, I merited it. People of God, it is all of grace from first to last. Jerusalem deserved to be left in ruins, but God says, I will have a people of my own. And see what God in His grace will do for us? So that in the 46th Psalm we read, be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Zechariah is all about hope. Amen and amen.